like to thank the chairman for his kind words of welcome tonight. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Mr. Toms, for the invitation to, to be here and to come back again. I think it's been a little longer than the last time, three years or, or thereabouts. We thank the Lord for the remnant testimony that there is in the nation and for those of like precious faith who know the Lord, love the Lord, and seek to stand for the crown rights of Jesus Christ in our day and generation. I was greatly struck as Paul read the scriptures this evening uh, by the opening line of verse 9 that says, But we see Jesus. And that's my desire tonight, and I, I trust that it is yours, that we will see Jesus Christ, our Saviour. And that will make the difference to our time together. Whether the number is small or great, it doesn't matter if we can just see the Lord and if we can just sense his presence with us. I was in Dawes Heath last evening and I, I was just thinking as we were preaching about those who talked about the Lord. And when you talk about the Lord, and that's a good thing, and we're going to talk about the Lord tonight, obviously, when we come to his word uh, more than often, we have the experience that the two disciples had on the road to Emmaus. Jesus himself will draw near and he will go with us. They were talking about the Lord on the journey. And as they talked about him, he came alongside. And if we talk about the Lord tonight and the Savior comes alongside, that will be a blessing. A real blessing in this time together. That's all I want to be. I just want to be a blessing to you. Sometimes when we travel to uh, various countries, we tell them that and we refer uh, to the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, where the Lord said to Abraham, I will bless thee and thou shalt be a blessing. And if God blesses you and in turn you go out there to be a blessing, then you'll touch the lives of others and you will be an encouragement and a source of strength to those that you meet with. So we seek to be that tonight. God has blessed me in so many ways. And uh, if we can be a blessing tonight, we will take that as an encouragement. We'll bow together in prayer and uh, seek the Lord. We are in this wonderful second chapter of the book of Hebrews tonight. And we look to the Lord for his help and guidance and his wisdom. The book of Hebrews, I'm sure, has been called a number of things. And Mr. Thomas referred to one of those things this evening came to my mind that it has been called the fifth gospel. Uh, the four gospels tell us about the ministry of Christ on earth. And this fifth gospel tells us about that continued ministry of Christ in heaven, who as our great high priest ever lives to make intercession for us. We look to him. Our gracious God, we thank thee for bringing us together. We thank thee for the grace of God that has triumphed in us. We were nothing without thee we are still nothing without thee we thank thee that the Lord found us in our sin revealed to us what we were in the sight of a holy God and showed us the, the very remedy in the person and the work of his own dear son the Lord Jesus Christ we thank thee for that day when by grace we laid hold upon the Saviour and we called upon the name of the Lord, and turning from our sin, 
by faith we trusted him and the Holy Spirit entered and we were born of God. Thank you for that moment when we were justified freely in the sight of the Lord, declared to be righteous in his sight. We praise thee that we still have that standing, a standing that was given to us that can never be taken away from us. We thank thee for the imputed righteousness of our dear Saviour that is upon every true child of God. And we thank thee for the practical outworking of that in the sanctified life. Help us to walk with God and to live a holy life and to represent the Saviour well as we live among men on earth that they may see him and that they might be drawn to him. Bless us in the scriptures now as we turn to your word. We pray that thou wilt encourage us in the Lord. And may we have the experience as we we talk about the Saviour that we've spoken about. May Jesus himself draw near and go with us. May his presence fill this room tonight. And may we be blessed indeed for Jesus' sake. Amen. It's always a joy and a privilege to preach Christ. He is the Alpha and the Omega of all true preaching. He is the centre of all things to the believer. And we can say with Paul, for we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. All our glory is in Christ. We have no personal ambition or desire to elevate any man, and least of all ourselves. No, our goal and our aim is to exalt, uplift, and proclaim our blessed Redeemer in all his glorious attributes, perfections, offices, and the doctrines surrounding his person and work. We present him as the one who is truly God, the eternal and the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. He who is both God and man in one person, the only mediator between God and man, and the only Saviour <coughs> and Redeemer of lost sinners. He is Jesus of Nazareth, he is the Christ, he's the true Messiah, and he is the Lord of all. He's not only the creator, but to his own dearly beloved people, he is the head and the husband and the redeemer through whom we have peace and pardon, reconciliation and righteousness, life and salvation. He's the altogether lovely one, the fairest of ten thousands to our souls and the lily of the valley and the bright and morning star. He is the one who has brought us into the banqueting house and his banner over us is love. And like the fair bride of Solomon's song, we can say in truth, I found him whom my soul loveth. I held him and would not let him go. The book of Hebrews exalts and magnifies Jesus Christ as the one who is far above all. Setting forth his superiority above all others, God hath exalted him far above all. Chapter 1, as you have listened to last month, highlights the deity of Christ. He is the brightness of God's glory. He is the express image of his person. 
the exact expression of his substance. Chapter 2 highlights the humanity of Christ. This Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, that he might be the mediator and the saviour who would bring many sons to glory. And I have been given the, the task of presenting to you Christ, the Son of Man, as we have it here emphasised in chapter 2 of Hebrews. And that's what I want to do very simply with you tonight. I want you to notice that we have the uh, proclamation of his humanity. Look there at verse 9. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. So he was made a little lower than the angels. When you come to verse 16, it's proclaimed again in very clear terms. He took on him the seed of Abraham. And verse 17, he was made like unto his brethren. And all these little phrases in the second chapter are proclaiming very clearly to us the humanity of Christ. Jesus Christ is not only fairy God of fairy God, he is fairy man of fairy man. He took upon himself our humanity with all the experiences, with all the emotions, with all the feelings and the limitations of our humanity. As God, he was omniscient. He knew all things. He was omnipotent. He was all-powerful. And he was omnipresent. He was everywhere at the same time. He knew the thoughts and the hearts of men. He read every one of them. He worked miracles by his own divine, omnipotent power. He was present everywhere by his spirit. He possessed fully and perfectly the attributes and the perfections of God. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness and truth. As man, he sorrowed. He thirsted. He hungered. He wept. He slept. He knew poverty. He was weary, just like you and I can be weary. And he was possessed with human emotion. The virgin conceived and bore a son whose name was Emmanuel, God with us. When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman. The eternal word who was in the beginning dwelling in union and communion with the Father and the Spirit in everlasting existence. That word who was with God and was God was made flesh and dwelt among us. God sent his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. The Lord of glory took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And so we declare in that amazing statement of the great Apostle Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 and 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. And here in Hebrews chapter 2, this is being proclaimed very clearly and very distinctly to us. He was made a little lower than the angels. He took upon him the seed of Abraham. He was made in the likeness of his brethren. I believe tonight with all of my heart that this was the greatest miracle that ever took place. 
No greater miracle ever occurred than at that moment when God became man. I could go to those creation days when God Almighty made the heavens and the earth in six literal days when he spoke and and it was done, calling the entire universe into existence. When we think of the magnitude of such an omnipotent miracle, these minds of ours cannot really fathom it. That God called everything that we know, everything that we see in the entire universe, and even those things that we can't see with the human eye, he called them all into existence in six literal days. I often marvel at the little phrase, he made the stars also. Don't know whether you've ever thought about that or not. just seems like a, an incidental thing. On the fourth day, when the sun and moon were called into being to rule over the day and the night, there comes this little phrase of inspired truth. He made the stars also, as if it was nothing to him. And of course, it was nothing to him. As God infinite and omnipotent, it was just a little matter. However, we know the immensity of creation and and what a mighty supernatural miracle it was. I'm sure you will agree. But nothing in comparison to the fact that God became man. The Son of God became the Son of Man. Periodically through the centuries of biblical history we read of mighty miracles that were wrought. The judgments, the plagues that fell upon the land of Egypt prior to the exodus. They were indeed mighty miracles that were wrought by God's own omnipotent power. The passageway through the Red Sea was a great and an infinite miracle indeed. When God blew with the east wind all night and, and the sea parted. Huge walls of water on either side, the very seabed being dried up and Israel therefore being enabled to walk across safely to the other side. The opening and the swallowing of Dathan and Abiram and their homes and their families alive into the pit. The fire that fell from heaven and uh, consumed the 250 men that offered incense. Those were great miracles. And then we have the days of Elijah and Elisha. We can ponder the New Testament times when Christ was here upon the earth and his disciples too. We can trace all those miracles through biblical history. But I want to tell you this. Though exceeding great and mighty miracles of stupendous magnitude, there was no greater miracle than at that moment when deity joined itself to humanity. And Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of the Father, took unto himself our humanity in the womb of Mary at the point of conception. And here the Apostle is proclaiming that wonderful truth, the proclamation of his humanity. Then I want to come secondly to the purpose of his humanity. And this second chapter reveals so much concerning the reason why God became man. For one thing, in the purpose of his humanity, we have the death of a Savior. In the ninth verse, the scripture speaks about the suffering of death, that the Lord was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. He was crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. 
And so our Savior was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. God could not die without a body, without a human body. The eternal Son of the Father must become flesh. He, he must take to himself a human body like unto ours if he is going to die for the sins of his people. So in the great purpose of God and Christ becoming man, we see the death of a Savior. We also see in verse 14 the destruction of Satan. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Another reason for his incarnation is stated here. He came to destroy <clears throat> the devil. Sinners without Christ are under the sentence of death. Physical and eternal death. Satan has the power of death as a court officer had the power over the gallows to take away the prisoner. And Jesus Christ came to destroy Satan's power and overthrow his tyranny on behalf of all true believers. And this he did by his own death upon the cross of Calvary when he ransomed his own life. Jesus became flesh. He took part of the same flesh and blood in the incarnation that he might bruise the head of the serpent and destroy his power forever. The purpose of his humanity, the death of a saviour, the destruction of Satan. And then I want to dwell just a little bit upon the delight of the saints. For our joy, for our delight, what wonderful things he did on our behalf. Want to read the ninth verse again and take in verses 10 and 11 and 15. Let's just read the scriptures here. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory. To make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Verse 15. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. What blessings we enjoy as the people of God through the incarnation of Christ. The fact that the Son of God became the Son of Man. First of all we enjoy the blessing of salvation. He suffered death. And he tasted death on our behalf. Christ's sufferings were for our cause. And this man and woman is the heart of the gospel. Jesus stood in my stead. He took my place. He suffered for me. He died for me. This is substitution. One of my favourite hymns is by Mrs. Cousin, the wife of the Free Church of Scotland minister who, who lived 150 years ago. In fact, she wrote 107 hymns altogether. And there's two of them especially have been a real blessing to my soul. One of them 
is entitled The Sands of Time Are Sinking, a hymn that brings the weary traveller to Emmanuel's land to gaze upon the King of Grace and the Lamb in all his glory. But the other hymn brings us to the theme of substitution. I was hoping it might have been in the hymn book tonight and we could have sung it together, but as a hymn I believe that you will be familiar with. O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head, our load was laid on thee. Thou stoodest in the sinner's stead, didst bear all ill for me. A victim led, thy blood was shed, now there's no load for me. Death and the curse were in our cup, O Christ, was full for thee. But thou hast drained the last dark drop, tis empty now for me. That bitter cup, love, drank it up, now blessings draft for me. Jehovah lifted up his rod, O Christ, it fell on thee. I was sore stricken off thy God, there's not one stroke for me. Thy tears, thy blood beneath it flowed, thy bruising healeth me. I thank God tonight from the depths of my heart that the Saviour came and he took upon himself a body. A body prepared by the Father himself. A body hast thou prepared me. For the purpose of the cross. To fully suffer and to taste death on my behalf. He loved me and he gave himself for me. David Dixon the Puritan who lived 400 years ago. Commenting on this part of the book of Hebrews. He said Christ's suffering was not for his own deserving. But for ours. And therefore should be glorious in our eyes. Every believer and elect soul hath an interest in the death of his. And so every man bound to love him and magnify him for it. And to apply the fruit of it to himself. I wonder is this how you feel as a child of God this evening? You ought to. If you have an interest in his death and sacrifice, if you know something of the, the application of Christ's sufferings and work to your heart and life, we ought to love him. We ought to magnify him and praise him and serve him and give him our hearts and keep his sufferings and death ever before our minds. Jesus, keep me near the cross was the cry of Fanny Crosby in her hymn. And that's my cry of heart too. And so one of the great benefits, one of the great blessings derived from the incarnation of Christ to the saints of God is our salvation. But there's much more than that. We also see in the second place our glorification. He came, he became man and he suffered death to bring many sons unto glory. Many sons will be brought to glory. All the redeemed are his sons, his children. We may well be few in comparison to the teeming multitudes of this world. Yet nonetheless a great many, indeed. A great multitude which no man can number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues. Every last one of them, saved by grace and washed in the Redeemer's blood, will be brought to heaven. And you will note that they will be brought you see, no one can go to glory who was not led there by the captain of our salvation. It is Jesus who will bring 
many sons unto glory. And he will lead us to heaven because he suffered and tasted death for us. It's the way of the cross that, that leads home. And there's coming a day when our blessed Savior standing before the eternal throne and glory will say to his father. As is recorded here in verse 13. Behold I and the children which God hath given me. Our glorification. And then I think we can also say our union is one of the great blessings uh, to the saints of God with the coming of Christ in human flesh. It is indeed a blessed thought that we are united to Christ in an inseparable bond. If you look there at verse 11, it says that we are all of one. Now, there's a natural bond between Christ and his people because we are of the same substance. We are human flesh. But there's a greater bond, a deeper bond. Jesus Christ is our mediator. He's our representative. We are joined to him in salvation. We are put in the Christ. Here indeed is a great mystery that we are all of one. I am in Christ in the truest sense of the word. And in Christ is a, is a beautiful term, isn't it? There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 and verse 1. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off were made nigh by the blood of Christ. In Ephesians 2 and verse 13. Our union. It's a blessing derived from the incarnation to the children of God. And then we can say also our sanctification. Verse 11 speaks of our sanctification. <clears throat> there can be no true holiness until a man is in Christ. But if we are in Christ... Holiness of life and character must follow if we are truly his children. And therefore we must study to be holy. If we claim relationship with Christ, union with him, then we must be like him. And if we are like him, then we are holy. Christ is the great sanctifier of his church. He sanctifies every son that he brings to glory. John Owen said, he will ever glorify, he will never glorify <clears throat> an unsanctified person. It is utterly impossible that any soul not washed in the blood of Christ, not sanctified by his spirit and grace, should stand in the sight of God. None can serve him here unless their consciences be purged from dead works by the blood of Christ. Nor can they come to him hereafter unless they are washed from all their defilement. Jesus Christ, the sanctifier, is the head. And they, the members of his body, he is holy. So must they be also a living head and dead members. How uncomely would it be? Jesus Christ came into this world. To make us holy. He justifies us. And he sanctifies us. And you can't have the one without the other. You cannot be justified and not sanctified. You cannot be sanctified and not justified. The two of them go inseparably together. Our blessed Saviour will lead none to heaven. 
but whom he sanctifies on earth. The holy God will not receive unholy men into glory. And then also another blessing that is derived to the saints of God by virtue of the fact that Christ became man is emancipation, our deliverance. Look at verse 15. It speaks about our deliverance here. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Another result of Christ's death is the delivery of believers from the bondage of the fear of death. There is a natural fear of death and the devil and hell itself rooted in all men from the fall. Now, it's not always felt, as we know, because men around us continue to sin. They continue to disobey. They continue to trample beneath their feet the gospel and all that pertains to God. But this fear is easily awakened. And there are times when men are brought face to face with death. A loved one is taken in the family and, and we are forced to consider the fact of death. A disease overtakes the body and maybe that disease is going to be fatal and men are brought face to face with death. An accident occurs. Some tragedy befalls an individual. Or very simple, simply they are brought to the reality of death and that truth seizes upon a man. And oh the fear that grips a person's heart and soul at the thought of dying. Passing from this scene of time. Breathing one's last breath on earth and then eternity. It brings a great fear. This fear puts men in bondage. Causes great apprehension and consternation. And even for the believer there are times of weakness and, and frailty. When our hearts are overwhelmed with the fear of the last great enemy. This we know, especially in, su in such times. Jesus Christ came to deliver his blood-bought people from the danger of this evil and from the bondage of this fear. Only a genuine child of God possesses a solid and a true courage in the face of death. He comes to the realization that Christ, the great shepherd, who gave his life for his sheep, keeps them in the darkest hour and gives to them that same confidence as the sweet psalmist of Israel had when he said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. He looks death in the face and declares, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. And it is Christ that gives us that confidence. I was reading uh, about what some of the great saints of God in the past said when they sought about death or they came to the hour of death. Martin Luther said, Our God is the, is the God from whom cometh salvation. God is the Lord by whom we escape death. 
John Knox said, Live in Christ, live in Christ, and the flesh need not fear death. John Wesley said, The best of all is, God is with us. Farewell, farewell. Richard Baxter said, I have pain, but I have peace. I have peace. Thomas Goodwin said, Ah, is this dying? How have I dreaded as an enemy this smiling friend? Wonder will we feel the same way we come to die? A smiling friend is how he described death. David Brainerd said, I am going into eternity, and it is sweet to me to think of eternity. The endlessness of it makes it sweet. But oh, what shall I say of the future of the wicked? The thought is too dreadful. Francis Havergill, the, the hymn writer, lived and moved in the word of God. His word was her constant companion. And on the day of, or the last day of her life, she asked a friend to read to her Isaiah 42. And when the friend read the sixth verse, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee. Miss Havergill stopped her, and she whispered, Called, held, kept. I can go home on that. Catherine Booth, the, the wife of General Booth, he, she said, The waters are rising, but so am I. I am not going under, but over. Do not be concerned about dying. Go on living well. The dying will be right. And all of us, saved by the grace of God, with a saving interest in Christ's death, we, we can cry, O death, where is thy sting? O death, where is thy victory? Because these are the great consolations that Christ gives to us by virtue of his incarnation. I hasten on to my third main point and I want to direct your attention to the final two verses of chapter 2. The perpetuity of his humanity. Wherefore in all things, verse 17, it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. The doctrine of Christ's incarnation is the ground of all our comfort. The Son of God took on him the seed of Abraham, not the nature of angels, and he continues forever as the God-man, truly God and truly man, in his glorified body, as our heavenly high priest seated in glory. He has our nature there, at the right hand of the Father, and that makes him a very suitable high priest to his people. You think of the office of the high priest. Jesus Christ is our high priest. He is our representative in glory, pleading our cause, 
interceding on our behalf, presenting our prayers through his own mediation, ever living to make intercession for us. You can think of the nature of his priesthood. He's a merciful and a faithful high priest. And we thank God for that tonight. He is merciful. Many times we fall short of what we ought to be as God's people. Many times we fail. We slip. We leave undone our many duties. But our loving high priest is always merciful to us in the midst of our shortcomings. And he prays for us as he prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail. And I'm glad about that tonight. We rejoice also that he is not only merciful but he's faithful. Ever watching over us. Never failing to discharge his ministry on our behalf. Neglecting nothing night and day that is for our good. And then we think of the ministry of his priesthood. To make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Our sins deserve and provoke God's anger. But Christ's priesthood pacifies God's wrath and works reconciliation towards us. And then we have the comfort of his priesthood. He is able to succor them that are tempted. In this world, we have tribulation. We are faced with trial. We are beset by temptation. We endure hardness as good soldiers of Christ. We experience suffering. There are two evils which particularly beset us in this world. Trouble and sin. Or suffering and temptation. Jesus Christ, our high priest, when on earth in the flesh experienced both. He faced many afflictions and troubles. He also faced temptation. He had no sin of his own, but he was tempted to sin. When we are in trouble, or we face temptation, we have need of comfort and relief. And there is one who can succor his people and bring relief and bring victory to us. And that is Christ, our high priest. And I would say to you this evening, fly to him in such times. When you are assailed in this life and you're faced with these things, flee to the Saviour. For he's able to succour those who are indeed tempted. I trust these thoughts have been a blessing. I trust that you have seen the Lord. And in seeing Christ that you have been blessed in your own soul. May God be pleased to draw graciously near and encourage us in the word. Let us pray.